Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, you can possibly think of has its own history, like mayhem, crabs and toenails. Ooh. Do you fancy doing any of those? I'm not yes, I want to do mayhem. It's a brilliant Ooh, idea. Oh, mayhem would be lovely. I think that could be all about the Vikings. Crabs? I was reading a very interesting article this morning about soft-shell crabs. Did you know, like them. Do you know what a soft-shell crab is? It's when, yes, I do. Oh, you do? Crab. I didn't know yep. this. It's, it's basically a crab without a shell, and you have to wait until mm-hmm. it shed its shell, and then you catch it and freeze it and sell it. Yeah, they're, they're super, super yummy. I had them in the Chesapeake Bay. Oh, you can get they are. Bucket, buckets and buckets oh, of them. They're they blue are. ones. There. They are delicious. Or we could do pouches, grouches and slouches. <laughs> Did you know I like, I like the sound of all three of those? I like, the, I, like, I like the idea of doing grouches. However, Sam, our brilliant uh, work study student, uh, Joanna from Plimpton Academy, has been very busy researching topics for us. She's suggested we do goblins, which I thought was inspired, <laughs> and jewellery. And she's got all sorts of ideas for us, so I think we'll have to fit that into our into our mm. very busy recording schedule. However, for the moment, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of hunger is in fact all about free school meals, which meanders from the 1941 free school meals policy via Maggie Maggie Thatcher, Milk Snatcher, to Marcus Ratchford and Jamie Oliver in more modern times, and also Che Guevara's Motorcycle Diaries. It's also all about famine and ancient manuscripts of Timbuktu. It's about hungry ghosts and hunger strikes in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Who knew? Or... Who knew that the history of bees, yes, bees have a history, is in fact all about medieval beekeeping, beeswax candles and fundamental changes in religious practices. It's also all about the superstitious practice of telling the bees, whereby individuals inform the bees of births and deaths in the family in order to prevent bad luck. It's also about the usefulness of bees in medieval Muscovy. Who knew? Who knew Mm. indeed? We have a bees nest in our road at the moment. It's extraordinary. It's literally the house opposite. They ha- a swarm has gathered on the wall and slowly over the last two weeks they've they've moved lower and lower on the wall and they are now on the ground. So there are literally thousands of bees on the ground. It's terrifying. Are you talking to them? Are you telling them things? Nothing's nothing's happened of any note, Sam. There've been well, no have births, to avoid bad luck, no deaths surely. in the family. Well, well should should I should I give birth? Um, I will I will <laughs> I will go and I will go and tell the bees. 
Okay. Uh, let me introduce my presenter, fellow presenter. If history were a relic, and this man a relic salesman, he would not be selling you multiple pieces of the true cross, multiple finger bones of saints. He would not have in stock far more than the expectant ten, multiple strands of Christ hair in blonde, brunette or red, whatever is required. As his sign says, he does not peddle in disbelief, but faith in truth and not lies. A historian to his bones, whose facts are as reliable as his relics for sale, who genuinely does have the true cross in his shop window. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello. Hello. That's as good as ever, Sam. Uh, You may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a disbelief-related historian, you would not believe the lengths to which he goes to uncovering historical worlds gone by like a historical crusader. He's mighty sword of history punctures the untruths of the past, correcting the historical record as he goes. It beggars belief. His reckies in the archives, his deductive power, the imagination with which he communicates his findings to the world. But believe me when I say that he is the famous historical adventurer (laughs) Dr Sam Willis. Very good. Hello, everyone. Uh, we are doing disbelief. Uh, we're doing disbelief uh, primarily for two reasons, because James's uh, flight um, to France was cancelled and he was so cross he couldn't believe it. And also disbelief at um, what the Americans are doing with abortion. Is that about fair to say, James? That's, that, that is about fair to say. I think I must admit we seem to be living through fairly incredulous times where a series of events seem to be fo- unfolding before our very eyes that are almost impossible to believe. I mean, you just look at the last sort of five years or so. Brexit, Trump, Ukraine, currently the breaking up of the Northern Ireland Protocol, UK immigration policy in Rwanda. Um, I mean, it's extraordinary what's happening here. Um, I've just read uh, for my book group, Ali Smith's breathtaking Seasons Quartet. So it starts with autumn, winter, spring and then summer. Uh, And it is a white hot literary outpouring written annually from 2015. So taking in Brexit, asylum seekers, Trump, the rise of populism, lockdown, all of these things that she deals with throughout these novels, written in four years. So it's an extraordinary sort of output. And you get the sort of sense of this almost sort of disbelief of what is happening that she manages to capture. But yeah, you're quite right. It's not just the fact that I had my flight cancelled. Fortunately, uh, we have rearranged it. But it It's basically the overturning of Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court on Friday the 24th of June 2022. If you're listening to this in a decade's time, you know, this is a we are living at the moment through a really significant, um, you know, a significant moment in history. And I just wanted to start with a little bit about. Roe versus Wade, just to give a little bit of background and history about that and the significance of it. Now, it's all started in 1969 uh, in Texas, and it was when a 25-year-old single woman called Norma McCorvey, uh, who went under the pseudonym Jane Doe, so it wasn't her real name, but it was to sort of protect her her identity, she challenged the Texas uh, criminal abortion laws. She basically, um, you know, basically what she was arguing is that she was pregnant with her third child, Um, She claimed that she had been raped. She was forced (laughs) to give birth uh, when the case was rejected. And several years later, 
the appeal makes it to the US Supreme Court in 1973. The case is heard alongside that of another uh, woman uh, from Georgia, a woman called Sandra Bensing, who's only 20 years old. And what they argue is something very, very fundamental. They argue that the abortion laws in both their states, so in Texas and Georgia, were against the US Constitution. And here's the key thing, because they infringed a woman's right to privacy. And this was upheld by the Supreme Court. The justices voted seven to two, and they ruled that governments should not have the power to prohibit abortions. And what this did was it then underlined all women's rights throughout the United States to be able to terminate uh, an unwanted pregnancy. What has happened now is that the Supreme Court has overturned this and they have voted six to three against this. And the significance of this is that basically what it means is that they know women are not protected by federal law. Instead, the law goes down to particular states and you have a, a range of states, over 20, who have fairly conservative views over abortion and so they have put in these trigger laws which will basically outlaw or severely hamper women's right to abortion and this for me is something that I am in total and utter disbelief in in any modern civilized society that this should be allowed to happen and what's more that this is an issue that polarizes a nation in this manner. And I think in many ways this is the lasting legacy of Trump. He's packed the Supreme Court with three conservative, Republican-leaning judges. Uh, he's been very careful that he's picked, he's picked people who are relatively young and, and on the far right of the, of the sort of judicial system. So these are people who are going to be in office for a considerable amount of time. Um, what's really significant, and arguments are coming out from the Democrats, that actually two of these individuals lied under oath uh, about Roe versus Wade. They said that they would never uh, overturn it. I think what you've got here, uh, because the, the Supreme Court is supposed to be completely impartial. You know, it's supposed to be outside of politics. But I think what it hinges upon is that you have a group of Republican judges, justices who are who take quite literally a textual reading of the Constitution, um, whereas Democrats see the Constitution as a living, breathing document where language changes and our interpretation of language changes over time as society evolves. So something like privacy, you know... <laughs> isn't 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 how it was defined when the constitution was first written but actually you think about it in a in a 21st century sense and the the really uh what 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 i find even more uh challenging uh and i find really hard to believe um is the extent to which in some of the judgments that have come out the commentary on the judgments it's the way in which this can be extended and that states will be allowed to go after all manner of of privacy, uh, which can extend to contraception, same-sex marriage, consensual sex. So defining privacy in a particular way that is intrusive, that is in denying people their rights under the Constitution, uh, 
anyway, Sam, that's where I that's where I was coming from when I wanted us to do disbelief. Yeah, no, very good indeed. Um, it was interesting about um, the right wing judges taking a very literal reading of the Constitution because they're the same people that take a very literal reading of the Bible. And I wonder why this conservatism has come keeps coming back to people um, having very rigid understanding of historical texts because that's exactly what it is isn't it yeah absolutely Mm. absolutely and um, I also it it does you know raise the point that uh, this is the disbelief uh, linked with um, uh, the overturning of Roe versus Wade is more important James than the disbelief linked with your flight and, yes, uh, slightly, yeah. although, although I found it very annoying. <laughs> uh, very annoying. But the point is, is that there are some disbeliefs that are more important than others, which I've been thinking about as well. Um, well, two things I've been thinking about. One is that you can kind of rank the importances of disbeliefs. And two is that, um, yes, there are so many things happening in the world at the moment, which we find very difficult to, to get our heads around. Um but within that, there are also really interesting questions about truth. And the two things that are making this particularly clear are the um, televised um, proceedings of the investigation into the January 6th uh, insurrection in Congress. Oh, gosh, yeah, I've been following um, this very closely. Yeah, well, there are three things. There's that. There's um, uh, the pandemic, about whether people... Um, almost like pandemic deniers, whether they believe there's a pandemic at all and people whether people believe um, uh, the vaccines work and also the Ukrainian war. And the Ukrainian war is really interesting um, because you've got various levels of questions of belief here. So first of all, you've got uh, uh, you know a suggestion that the Ukrainians didn't believe that the Russians were actually going to invade. They thought they were just marching around on their border, uh, preparing to just using a military muscle to um, uh, to help kind of uh, grow people's um, fear of them on a world stage. Um, and that made me think about uh, historical parallels to that, um, particularly appeasement of Hitler. Uh, just prior to the Second World War, uh, Hitler's invasion of Poland really is very interesting. And if you look at Hitler's invasion of Poland, then it does raise another really interesting question all to do with belief. And this is that, uh, you know, whose side do you believe once people are in the grip of war? Um, So with Hitler and Poland, uh, it was specifically consciously described as a defensive war. Uh, by Hitler. Hitler claims that the Polish have attacked Germany, um, that Germans in Poland are persecuted with a bloody terror and are driven from their homes. Their series of border violations, which are unbearable to a great power, prove that the Poles no longer are willing to respect the German frontier. It's, It's almost exactly what Putin was saying about the Ukrainians. And not only that, it's once you get into the war itself. So you've got this question of belief at the beginning of the war, then you get into the war itself. It's the what do you believe in terms of the activities of what's going on? So obviously, um, there's the kind of the day to day updates we're getting on who's doing what in Ukraine. But more specifically now, you've got people investigating war crimes uh, in Ukraine. And um, the, there's a very interesting um, historical aspect to this you could look at in the Second World War, of course, which is the Holocaust. Um, and the Holocaust is interesting because it's, um, without any doubt, the, the, the best historically documented example of genocide in history. And yet you still have 
Holocaust deniers, you still have people who 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 choose not to believe um, in the historical evidence. Uh, the reasons they take that uh, stance are, are numerous, um, but a lot of them come back down to um, sort of deep-seated anti-Semitism anyway. Um, and I've just been very interested in, in the way that um, the evidence has been presented for war crimes in Ukraine. And I haven't heard or seen any, any Russian responses to that at all. That seems to be a very one-sided um, kind of narrative. But it'll come out in the future and some people will, will be forced to defend what happened, to explain, um, to explain what's going on. But obviously, um, the point to make is that there are um, all sorts of historical parallels with what's going on in the world, particularly in um, in the war in Ukraine, uh, particularly around these issues of truth. Um, and of course, you know, the the, the, the insurrection itself um, and the pandemic and, and who believes what and how our understanding of truth has all changed with social media is, is a defining characteristic of our age. It doesn't mean that there weren't issues of truth uh, with around truth in the past. Um, that's certainly not the case. Um, but it's just the way that that's evolved now, particularly with um, uh, the, the, the use of social media as a weapon in war. I'll stop talking now. <laughs> no, no, carry on, carry on if you need. Uh, I mean, that, that, that whole thing about about war picks up on one of the examples that I was going to talk about. Um, and we've talked about the First World War in the past, and I just wanted to do a little bit about uh, the first gas attacks at Ypres uh, on the 22nd of April 1915 when the Germans launched a renewed offensive um, and what they brought out was a new weapon uh, and it was poison gas and I was struck here by some of the oral history that survives and I found a brilliant uh, article on the Imperial War Museum website it was a transcript of a podcast that was basically a series of oral history um, memories of people who'd fought during the war and this is the description of a first first-hand account description of a, a witness um, a British sapper called Lendon Payne who describes this attack when the gas attack was over and all clear was sounded, I decided to go out for a breath of fresh air and see what was happening. But I could hardly believe my eyes. That's where the, the disbelief comes in. So it's this idea about, about empiricism and being able to, to sort of... Actually, belief comes when you can see something, but also your eyes almost are telling... You know, you can't believe what you're seeing. But I could hardly believe my eyes when I looked along the bank. The bank was absolutely covered with bodies of gassed men. Must have been over a thousand of them. And down in the stream, a little bit further along the canal bank, the stream there was also full of bodies as well. They were gradually gathered up and all put in a huge pile after being identified in a place called Hospital Farm on the left of Ypres. And whilst they were there, the ADMS, and ADMS is an acronym for Assistant Director of Medical Services, so the ADMS came along to make his report, and whilst he was sizing up the situation, a shell burst and killed him. So I think what we've got then here is almost the... It's the disbelief that something so horrific is happening. And if you look at the initial descriptions 
of the gas attack, something that you haven't encountered before. People are finding it very hard to come to terms with it. There's another account here from Archibald James, who was an observer in the Royal Flying Corps, and he saw a gas attack for the first time. I witnessed from the air the first gas attack when the Germans used chlorine gas at Ypres Salion. Suddenly, we saw to the north of us in the Salion this yellow wall moving quite slowly towards our lines. We hadn't any idea what it was. We reported it, of course, when we landed, and an hour or so later, the smell of chlorine actually reached our aerodrome. And there's another example here of, of a British officer, Martin Greener, who watches the gas approaching their position. Just at dawn, they opened a very heavy fire, especially machine gun fire, and the idea of that was apparently to make you get down. And then the next thing we heard was this sizzling. You know, I mean, you could hear this damn stuff coming on, and then saw this awful cloud coming over, a great yellow, greenish-yellow cloud. It wasn't very high, about, I would say, it wasn't more than 20 feet up. Nobody knew what to think, but immediately it got there... We knew what to think. I mean, we knew what it was. Well, then, of course, you immediately began to choke. Then word came, whatever you do, don't go down. You see, if you got to the bottom of the trench, you got the full blast of it, because it was heavy stuff. It went down. A brilliant depiction of this is that famous painting by John Singer Sargent, Gassed, which depicts uh, a gas attack on the Western Front in August 1918. Um, but it, it it really is quite you know quite extraordinary how people are, are coming to terms with this. The rest of the the accounts in this article that I read are about how how they actually dealt with it because they weren't equipped with gas masks at the time, so it was sort of disbelief. And you see them at first, the soldiers at first, you know, basically wetting handkerchiefs. There's a description of. Uh, of a, an officer who gets several tubs of Vaseline to treat his injured troops, you know, and literally puts the Vaseline down their throats to try where they've been burnt to try and stop them from gasping. There's then an attempt to deal to basically improvise gas masks. So they're given these sort of rolls of cotton wool with, with, with some sort of chemical on them, and then an elastic band to tie that around the neck. But it doesn't really it doesn't really work. And there are all sorts of descriptions of people only being able to keep it on for for two minutes and then taking it off and then breathing in the gas. But one of the one of the best um, sort of memories that I've come across is of uh, a young first aid uh, nursing yeomanry member, uh, a woman called Beryl Hutchinson, who goes to uh, British head general headquarters, you know, shortly after uh, the Ypres attack. And she meets there the officers who have no idea what has gone on. Um, so we went and climbed that long hill at Montreal, and got to the Holy of Holies and were duly admitted, and sent it sent into an enormous room, yards of room. It was under the castle there, you know what these French castles are. And at the far end was this enormous table with officers dotted all around as though it was a stage set. So we trotted up, our knees shattered, shattering, not knowing whether we were going to be executed as spies or not, 
and it appears they hadn't had any real word about the gas attack and the effects and they started asking us about it were our respirators any good and we said no they weren't they were just little bits of wet cotton wool and all those sorts of questions as they had no idea about what the gas attack was so there there again is this sense of disbelief or not knowing the sort of you know the lack of knowledge that that wanting to seek out what was happening and you get this sort of sense of how you know gas as a technology as a military technology was being used and people had to very quickly sort of pivot and deal with it as best they could so there we are sam a little bit of a little bit of disbelief and some horrors from the trenches in the first world war mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Very good, very good. I'm particularly interested in the way that beliefs change. Um, and one of the things I'm interested in, actually what you were talking about with Roe versus Wade is that, you know, you find it so difficult to believe what's happening. But that is a um, motivation for becoming a historian, of course. I mean, it's it's not surprising at all that you, you have these kind of disbeliefs and they annoy you so much because not understanding and not knowing how things happened in the past is one of the triggers for going back to find out exactly what why it's happened so you know in that case you can go back and we can look at the history of american politics to find out how america is so deeply divided over this issue which we all find completely uh, uh, bewildering certainly from this side of the pond um but it's really interesting the way that beliefs change. It's the opposite of that. There you've got an entrenched belief which has been the same for yonks. But there are some which have changed. And the one that I thought I would look at particularly was witchcraft. Um, and what's interesting here is how it rises and then it falls. Um, and it's particularly the date is, I suppose, the second half of the 1500s. Now, prosecutions for witchcraft are very rare before that i mean primarily uh because they they, they it's not they don't believe in it it's they don't believe that it's necessarily a problem um but then by the second half of the 1500s everything changes um and you start getting 
a scattering of trials, of individual trials suspected of practising harmful magic of one sort or another. And there's the occasional mass trial. Um, It's interesting that these are mainly in Switzerland and neighbouring territories. And that seems to be driven by a growing fear of an underground conspiracy of devil worshippers. Now, in the second half of the century, the the number of prosecutions hugely increases, particularly in northwestern and central Europe, and it routinely leads to investigations. Um, by the early 17th century, you've got both ordinary people and a governing elite who share a conviction um, that harmful magic is there and it needs to be dealt with. Um, but this tends to change quite clearly in the the middle of um, the middle third of the 17th century, I suppose, is probably the best way of putting it. Um, and then you've got a, a, a sort of a, a large enough number of both ordinary people, but also leaders. And this is Western and Central Europe, particularly, who lose their certainty about the um, prevalence of um, of witchcraft and or, or um, of evil, evil magic. And they still believe it does exist. They still believe it's potent and powerful. But they're not so convinced about how widespread it is. And they're also not convinced about the practicality of identifying and punishing um, those who are involved in it. And I thought that was fascinating because that definitely links with um, the the 6th of January investigations to the the insurrection in Congress, where... um, not only have you got a a belief, the belief being, um, you know, was there a planned insurrection? Uh, and, and around that was um, was the election stolen. Um, but there is a a very conscious um, belief in American politics, um, which is demonstrated by these televised uh, televised occurrences, the, the televised trials, that it is worth. Um, making this as public as possible, making the evidence to show that there was pre-planning as public as possible. But that's different to a belief that it's worth prosecuting those involved. And um, and I think the way that it's all being televised, it actually reveals a belief that it's probably not worth going to court and, and that um, people, like primarily Trump, will never be held account to it. So I thought there were some interesting lessons there, James, about... Um, the sort of prevalence of a belief, but also the the the, the interesting um, thought about whether it's actually worth and practical to uh, to punish those people who are involved in something that you think is wrong. Ooh, that's very very deep and meaningful. I mean, Trump, of course, there's a parallel between witchcraft because he sees it as a he sees it almost as a witch trial that people are sort of hounding him almost as if he's a witch. Uh, but when you look at the evidence that's coming through Congress at the moment on the bipartisan committee, and particularly the the sort of recent revelation of the intern and the role that Trump played in trying to take away the um, those devices that um, that metal detectors from you know stopping guns coming into the crowd, wanting to you know accompany uh, the crowd down to the Capitol building on the sixth of January. You see how how he was really at the head of this and really urging them on. And there's a description of how you know he you know wanted his secret service people to take him up to the capital so that he could head this group of people and is told no 
and tries to grab the wheel of the car this is all according to the the intern uh who is a you know has you know seems uh, sort of you know uh, a fully paid up member of the republican party and has you know worked as a staffer for for various you know um conservative republicans you know her her testimony is that he grabbed the wheel and then tried to lunge at the secret service agent for preventing him from going so it it seems absolutely complicit uh in this anyway i wanted to go in, a, in an entirely different direction which was thinking about belief and religion uh oh, and hang a- on before you do, before yes. you do that let me just just make one one extra point which yes. you might come to well certainly with witchcraft one of the it's like there's a historiographical problem here and in that primarily historians have looked at the rise of witchcraft because there's a certain amount of disbelief no one can understand how so and why so many people uh how so many women across uh, across northern and central Europe were killed for for you know what is pretty fantastical and crazy beliefs, um, and so that's it really encouraged people to try and understand what's going on. But no one's really studied why it stopped, which I think is really interesting because apparently it's sort of self-explanatory. It's like well, they all believe they all suddenly realised it was complete nonsense, uh, but that means there's a there's a huge gap in our understanding of why belief in witchcraft stopped and it's not as straightforward as you might expect and, and obviously there are so many different factors which affect the way that people believe in things and it's as interesting as why the the belief in witchcraft rose but there's a gap there and we need to know more about it i quite was it quite interesting in that I, i'm not going to try and tackle that <laughs> now <laughs> on the spur of the moment without giving that more deeper thought but we should definitely come back to that as an idea i mean what i wanted to talk about just very briefly um and this is a huge topic is this idea of of disbelief you know very often the 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 the, if we're talking historiographically much of the study of religion is about traditional religions um yeah if you think about the history of the western church it is that sort of coming of christianity it's the medieval church it's the reformation the sort of fracturing of religions rise of of protestantism etc etc um much less attention is paid to the idea of atheism so this sort of sense of the uh, 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 absence of a belief in the existence of of deities um so or a rejection of uh, of a belief in in a in a god um i mean this in itself is really is really interesting it has a it has its roots back in the ancient world um there are sort of seeds in the medieval period but really atheism we see as a term coming in the 16th century connected to the reformation and i suppose the challenges to the catholic church that come from the reformers what that does is it actually gives the apparatus of sceptical inquiry, criticism of religion, that basically allows people to pick apart all religions and to start picking apart uh, Protestantism. And that's where you see the sort of rise of nonconformity. And I think if we're thinking about that tendency towards disbelief, you can see that intellectually in the world of the history of ideas you're really taking off in the 16th and 17th century with the rise of natural philosophy. You think about the work of Francis Bacon there and that sort of empirical inquiry. So basically, rather than relying on 
um, religious evidence, so evidence from religious works, the Bible, um, patristic fathers, those kinds of things, you're actually having something that is much more evidence-based and much more empirical. And this really takes off during the 18th century with the, with the Enlightenment. And one of the first figures to reject religious beliefs is Baron uh, Dolbach, uh, who is a... a, a French-German philosopher, uh, writer, prominent uh, French Enlightenment thinker, um, and developed various sort of ideas that were setting up, uh, that were very anti-religious and were setting up a society um, the without a without a god in it. Um, I'm not going to go into all of those, but it's a really interesting sort of uh, route to go down. What I'm going to talk about just very briefly now is this idea of um, is is this idea that atheism as an as a, a sort of mode of thought was is something that is relatively modern with its seeds in the 16th 17th century and and the enlightenment um it's it's often seen as as very modern and there is that idea that actually people are hardwired to be religious and there's been some really interesting work around looking at the correlations between levels of education and wealth we, and IQ with atheism and there is a correlation the 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 sort of more educated and wealthier and more secure you are the less likely you are to believe in God and the higher the likelihood that there is you know disbelief um, versus societies where education is lower so the analytical kind of qualities that people that people have um, their security in themselves and their society their ability to you know feel uh, that they're going to be okay uh, those kinds of societies tend to be much more uh, religious uh, and there's a much less disbelief, presumably because they, if we're thinking about this as sort of anthropologists, they need those kinds of belief systems in order to you know, maintain them, maintain themselves. So there's a really interesting, um, there's a really interesting sort of body of analysis around that. But I read, uh, I read a fascinating book. Uh, by a professor of Greek culture, a uh, fellow of St John's College, University Cambridge, called Tim Whitmarsh, which is called Battling the Gods. And the main argument that he's putting here is that people in the ancient world did not always believe in gods. And what he's doing is he's unpicking entirely that idea that... Um, Atheism is a completely modern thing, and the what he's challenging is this idea that you know that that humans are hardwired for religion, and what he's saying is that not only not only was there atheism within the ancient world, but also that if you think about these polytheistic societies of the ancient world, atheists actually thrived during this period. We tend, I quote, to see atheism as an idea that has only recently emerged in secular Western societies. The rhetoric used to describe it is hypermodern. In fact, early societies were far more capable than many since of containing atheism within the spectrum of what they considered normal. 
rather than making judgments based on scientific reason, that's the kind of thing that we see during the 16th and 17th and 18th century, um, these early atheists were making what seemed to be universal objections about the paradoxical nature of religion, the fact that it asks you to accept things that aren't intuitively there in your world. In other words, you can't see and touch them. They're not empirical in that sense. They're much more spiritual. The fact that this was happening thousands of years ago suggests that forms of disbelief can exist in all cultures and probably always have. In other words, disbelief is actually as old as the hills. And he goes on, Believers talk about atheism as if it's a pathology of a particular odd phase of modern Western culture that will pass. But if you ask someone to think hard, clearly people also thought this way in antiquity. And so the book goes on to sort of give a whole range of examples about how this, you know, how this was you know evidence for this in the in the ancient world so there we are sam there's the the unpicking of disbelief in the ancient world and the kind of you know that sort of sense in which not being able again it's not being able to believe your eyes because you don't see it before your eyes um mm. if you see what i mean so we've got a sort of juxtaposition between if we think about the example of the gas it's actually seeing things and not believing it and coming to terms with it but actually what yeah. we've got here is a sort of really empirical sense in which if you can't see it, you don't believe it. And of course, that kind of rise of empiricism that we see and that kind of natural philosophy, that kind of rational inquiry, those are the intellectual underpinnings of our discipline of history. That's where empiricism comes from. Um, mm. So who'd have thought that disbelief was in fact all about the foundations the intellectual foundations of history it is the very epistemology <laughs> of knowledge itself sam willis very good and if you're interested in the link between uh, religion and belief I, I do recommend looking at the history of the book of mormon um i have taken my kids to go and see the uh, the the show recently it's brilliant anyway the book of mormon itself is utterly fantastic and it's worth reading and essentially um, this is all to do with the theology of Latter-day Saints. It's it's to do with um, writings of ancient prophets who lived in America from of 600 BC to um, 421 Common Era. Um, it was first published by a chap called Joseph Smith in 1830. And um, <laughs> unsurprisingly, there raises uh, some, some fairly significant problems um, with fitting this um, this this new understanding of these American prophets uh, into history, and there have been some f just truly magnificent books written about it by Mormons defending um, from historians and archaeologists uh, their beliefs. And um, there are just some wonderful examples trying trying to explain how and why uh, silk appears in in Mormon theology when it was unknown uh, in America at the time of Columbus and uh, there were no horses around. Anyway, the whole thing is completely fantastic and it is really worth reading about. Um, give you a new uh, aspect on belief and religions. Oh, the, the Book of Mormon. Do you like? Was it? Is it good? It's fantastic. It's the, it's the best musical I've ever seen. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Um, that's it guys uh, do please uh, follow me on Twitter I'm at Dr Sam Willis um, uh, for more information and discoveries as we make them and if you're interested in the history of the sea maritime history do please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast 
And you can follow me on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on social media on Facebook and Instagram, so check us out there. We also have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can see our entire back catalogue. Um, and you can also get copies of signed copies of our books. So check that out. And um, if you wish to support us in what we're doing to change the way in which people think about the past, you can become a patron of Histories of the Unexpected. And how do you do that? I hear you ask. Well, you need do no more than to head over to patreon.com and our Histories of the Unexpected page, and you can click a link, and anything that you can do to help us would be very gratefully received. But meanwhile, thank you for listening, and hope you believed your ears. <laughs> we'll be back again soon. We should do ears. Let's do ears next time. I think we've uh, done it. All... Have we done it? I'm not sure we have done ears. Oh, ears would be good. <laughs> ears would be good. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.